Turn your Bible, please, to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew, chapter 5. The music has been such a blessing today. It always is. We thank the Lord for precious Word of God through song and all that it means to our hearts. Matthew, chapter 5, we read verses 13 through 16, a passage that many of you have memorized. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. May we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the Word of God in song, in Scripture, in sermon. We pray that just now Thou wilt quiet our hearts and cause there to come a holy hush here in this auditorium and everywhere in this building where the Word of God is being preached right now. May the Holy Spirit move in power, bringing conviction, bringing understanding. May He do His work drawing the lost to Jesus and encouraging the saved. For Christ's sake, amen. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It is therefore good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Ye are the salt, ye are the light. And that's my message today. I want to ask you to be salty and to let your light shine. The Sermon on the Mount is that passage from which we have just read. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew are a distillation of all that Jesus said and all He stood for and all He taught us. The Sermon on the Mount is a plan of service rather than a plan of salvation. We really can scarcely take Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and teach it to lost people. Though a believer that lives Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and has that passage incarnated in his life will make the lost world hungry, thirsty, and will be a light that will draw them to Jesus. Yet in this passage itself, we do not have a detailed statement of how to be saved. The implications of this passage are not for the lost, they're for the saved. They do not teach a lost person how to be saved or how to go to heaven. I've heard people say, well, if I just live by the injunctions of the Sermon on the Mount, everything will be all right. The problem with that is a lost person can't do that. The truths of this passage are so powerful, so potent, that it is impossible to live this 
without the power of the Holy Spirit. And even a believer, unless he is daily filled with the Holy Spirit, will have a tough time with Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The similes in this passage describe a new man in Christ, the kingdom man. This life of the disciple gives God the glory, not man, for no man can live it. Jesus had walked 60 miles to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. After the baptism, he had gone out into the Mount of Temptation, and the devil had tried every way possible to get Jesus to compromise. If you're really the Son of Man, let this stone be a piece of bread. You're hungry. If you're really the Son of God, jump down out of this mountain or off the pinnacle of the temple. It is written, He'll give His angels charge over thee, and not one of your foot, feet will be dashed to the ground. If you're really the Son of God, you fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all of the minds of men. And you won't have to go to the cross. Those were the temptations. And dear friend, if our Lord was tempted, do you think we're not going to be tempted? If He met with sore temptation, do you suppose for one little tiny instant that we're not going to be tempted in all points? Jesus had chosen His disciples. Now the public ministry begins, but before it begins, Jesus has taken His disciples aside up into a mountain and begins to talk with them. Notice Matthew 5, 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, He went up into a mountain. And when He was seated, His disciples came unto Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them. This passage was not for the multitudes, it was for His disciples. It's for those of us who follow in their train. Someone has called this sermon the ordination address of the twelve. Somebody else said, has said the Sermon on the Mount is the compendium of Christ's doctrine. Someone else has said the Sermon on the Mount is the Magna Carta of the kingdom, the manifest, manifesto of the king, the core and the essence and the distillation of the teachings of Jesus and the, to the inner circle of His chosen ones, which would include you and me. So when we read this passage and we listen to the message, remember that it's like Jesus is coming again to the Glendale Baptist Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky, calling His disciples aside on this Sunday morning and saying, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're the saltiest thing the world's going to ever taste about heaven. You're the most brilliant light the world will ever see about heaven. If they don't taste it and see it in you, they will miss it. Now the similitudes suggested in this passage, remember, are a plan of service, not a plan of salvation. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Sin is exceedingly deceiving. That's what I'm trying to say. Sin is exceedingly deceiving. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things who can know it. Men call sin a mistake. God calls it madness. Men call it a flaw. God calls it fatal. Men call it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Men call it a sickness. God calls it sin. Men call it sowing wild oats. God calls it wild, wicked rebellion. Men call it youthful experimentation, but God calls it an terrible, excruciating yoke that weights one down, down, down. That's what sin is. And in John chapter 3, Jesus said there must be a radical change in a man's life if he's ever going to get to heaven. It's like being born all over again. You can't build on your old life and add to it the ingredients of the Sermon on the Mount and expect to come out okay. There has to be a radical change first. Jesus said you must be born again. And remember that he said that to a very good man. The man's name was Nicodemus. He was a tither. He was a church member. He didn't run around. He wasn't a profane man. He was a good man. He was respected. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the most respected Jews of his day. And Jesus said to that man, except a man be born again, you can't enter heaven. He would say the same thing today. Whoever we are, whatever walk we come from, whatever station is our background, Jesus said to the Presbyterians, to the Catholics, to the Lutherans, to the Baptists, to the Methodists, you must be born again. He says to the Buddhists, to the Confucianists, he says to the humanists, he says to the atheists, he says to the agnostics, you must be born again. There is no exception. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now these similes are for those who are saved. But the characteristics exemplified in the life of a believer make the unsaved hungry and thirsty. That's the reason Jesus told us to live this life. That's the reason he said you're the salt. You're the light. Now these similes describe the new man in Christ. Jesus makes no apology for the toughness of discipleship. In Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25, and there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. The Lord did it a strange way. He didn't plead and beg with people to come and follow him. He said, You've got to leave all to follow me. I know some people today who go from church to church looking for a church that can offer them a whole lot and demand very little. Beloved, you don't understand the Christian faith. Jesus demanded a whole lot and offered very little. He said the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Come and follow me. He weeded them out. 
If you're looking for a merry time, if you're looking for some easy, rosy bed, you're barking up the wrong tree when you come to Jesus. Now, wait a minute, preacher. Are you trying to run people off? No. And yet, I've been amazed as I've read over and over again John chapter 6. As John chapter 6 opens, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and they all hover around him. And the Lord says, I know why you came. You came because of the miracles. And he begins to talk to them about the roughness of the way and the toughness of the way and how difficult it's going to be. And John 6, 66 is a terrible indictment on people of that day and today because the record says from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And the Lord turned to the inner circle, the 12, and he said, will you also go away? And Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom can we go? Thou only hast the words of eternal life. And that's that inner circle that Jesus speaks to. He says, remember that you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Well, what about these similes? The salt, the light. Salt in the ancient world was greatly valued. The Greeks called it theon. That means divine. Theos is God. They called salt theon. It was divine. There's nothing more useful than the sea, the sun, and the salt, they used to say. In the time of Jesus, salt was thought of with these three qualities. Number one, purity. It is the purest of all things because it came from the purest of all things, the sun and the sea. In the examples of purity we find in this passage, in a world of large standards, standards of honesty, standards of diligence in work, standards of conscientiousness, standards of morality, in a world of lower standards, the Christian has to be salty. Salt of the earth. Because salt is pure. Secondly, salt is a preservative. It keeps things from going bad. Plutarch used to say, meat is a dead body and part of a dead body. When you eat that beef steak for dinner today, it's dead. Part of a dead body. You eat that piece of deer, it's something you shot out there several weeks ago or months ago, it's dead. You eat that sausage for breakfast or you eat that steak for lunch, it's part of a dead body. And left to itself, it'll go bad. You can't take it. But listen, salt preserves it and keeps it fresh and is therefore like a new soul in that meat. And Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. The world has gone bad. Morals have gone bad. Men have become dishonest. Standards have been lowered. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative, and the Christian must have a certain antiseptic influence in life. And thirdly, salt adds flavor to things. 
Christians are to add flavor to our world, the flavor of joy. The opposite is often true. I'd read somewhere where Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I might have entered the ministry if many of the clergymen I knew hadn't acted so much like undertakers. <laughs> Down all the time, defeated all the time. In a worried world, the Christian is serene. In a depressed world, the Christian is full of joy. If salt loses its flavor, what will the world do? The second simile Jesus used was light. That light was a borrowed light. Jerusalem was to be a light to the Gentiles and to Israel. That's the reason if you go to Jerusalem today, you see little lamps burning all over Jerusalem, especially in the Jewish places and the synagogues and so on. Because it was thought that Jerusalem was to be a light to the, to the world and a light to the Gentiles. The man of God shines with a brilliant borrowed light, like the moon that reflects the sun. The moon has no light of its own. It's just dead out there in space, but when you look at night and there's no eclipse and it's a clear night and you see the brilliance of that sun reflecting on the moon, it lights up the whole earth. And on a clear night, you don't even need street lights. You don't even need a flashlight. You could read by moonlight, a reflected light. And that's part of the picture of a Christian, but that's only part of it because we're not like the moon at all. The moon has only a reflected light, but you and I, Ammonite light. Light comes from within us. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You're not just a reflected light. You have light inside of you. If you've received Christ as your Savior, you're light on a dark night. You have light within you. Paul said, Christ inside of you is the hope of glory. And if you've received Christ as personal Savior and light and Lord, then He is the light and His light emanates from within you. Moses went up on the mountain. He was with God and when he came back down, he didn't know that his face was shining and he had to put a veil over his face because the people were afraid to look on him. The light of God was emanating from him. God in him. You and I are to be a light in a dark, dark world. Light needs to be seen. Light is a guide. Light gives warning. Light warms. Well, with these similes in mind, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. What did he mean? In Matthew chapter 5, he makes it very, very clear what he means. And we want to just look at some of these passages. He said, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the, world, of the earth in regard to anger. He said in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that it was said of them of old, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever thou sh shalt kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell. Jesus said, murder starts in the heart. That's where hatred is. And he said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. The only salt this world will know, the only light this world will know is the light that emanates from you. 
how are you going to handle anger? How are you going to handle hatred? You've been wronged. You've been hurt. Somebody stepped on your toes. Somebody defamed you. Said Somebody said ugly things about you that were not true. What will you do? Get angry enough to murder? Jesus said, no. You're the salt of the earth. If you get like that, you've lost your saltiness. If you're like that, you've lost your warmth. Well, preacher, I just can't live. I can't help it. If you're saved, you can because you can ask for more of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Jesus never told us to do something He didn't give us grace to do. You say, those are hard sayings. Well, let's go on. Get a little bit harder as we go. Look in verse 23, chapter 5. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest thou that thy brother hath anything against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar. Go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Jesus said, if you remember that somebody has something against you, you go make it right with them. Now, they may not let you make it right, but do your best. Do what you can. Oh, what a world we'd have. What a sweet world we would have. If God's people would go and make things right. So many times we say, well, I'm going to wait till so-and-so comes and apologizes to me. Jesus never told us to do that. He said the believer who is salty, who has light, he's to be the first to go and make things right. It's a hard saying. Yeah. John 6.66 says, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They lost their saltiness. They lost their light. But there's something else. Look in verse 27. You have heard that it was said of them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. Jesus put the problem with purity in the heart. He said it doesn't start with the outward act. It starts in the heart. If you have adulterous heart, you're already guilty. And that outward act is only following the impulses of the heart. And when we notice those ugly things coming in our heart, what do we do about them? We need to take them beeline to Jesus. Say, Jesus, here they are. I confess them to you. And I would dare say that this sin of adultery covers all problems of sexual impurity. Adultery, strictly speaking, is a married man having an affair with another married woman outside of marriage. Or a married woman having an affair with another married man outside of marriage. That's adultery. But I believe this covers fornication. We're single people. Indulge in sexual impurities outside of marriage. We live in an age of free love. Premarital sex. Do whatever you want to do. Try it out. See if it's going to work. Jesus said that starts in your heart. And when you do that, you've lost your saltiness. You've lost your light. You have to go back for a reindwelling of the Holy Spirit. I think the same thing would apply to homosexual sins. Years ago, that, that word was hardly ever used openly. 
Today, there are homosexuals wanting their rights, marching around the world. We demand rights. Jesus put his finger on the problem. He says it starts with impurity in the heart. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And if you've lost your purity, you've lost your saltiness and your light, what do you do about it? You go back to Jesus and ask Jesus to re-indwell in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. But there's something else. Listen, Jesus said in verse 31, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. We live in an age of free divorce. One out of every three marriages ends in divorce today. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth, God's people. If you lose that saltiness, if you lose that light, world is going to go groping around in darkness. And they're likely to follow you down that same path. Jesus said, come back. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Concerning divorce, Jesus said from the beginning it was not so. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, gave you that right of divorcement. But it was not so with the Lord. And Jesus said in Matthew 19 as well as in Matthew 5 and in other related passages, God's plan was one man for one woman for life. I do not believe that Jesus taught that this was an impardonable sin or an unpardonable sin any more than any of these others are. And there are many of you that find yourself in a situation like that. And it's too late to do anything about it. But you can go back to Jesus. Make a beeline to our Lord and say, Lord, I want to be salty. I want to be the light of the world. And I'm not going to let that happen to me again. I want the fullness of God's touch and power upon my life. I want the touch of the Holy Spirit. Well, he goes on. He says in verse 33, Again, you've heard that it was said of them of old, Thou shalt not perjure thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. Whatsoever more is more of that cometh of evil. Jesus said, Watch your speech. I swear on a stack of Bibles a mile high that this is true. Well, folks, that's not necessary. Let your word be your bond. You ever heard somebody say, well, I swear that's true. You don't have to do that. Or by gee, that's true. You say, preacher, you're getting irreverent. I've heard lots of you do that. Jesus said, that's not necessary. You're the salt of the earth. All you have to do is say, yes, that's true. No, that isn't true. Let your word be your bond. Because you're the salt, you're the light. Well, on and on we could go. Jesus applied the same thing to our conduct. 
in verse 38, to our love life in verse 43, in chapter 6, to the alms and charity and to prayer and to possessions, and in chapter 7, to judgmentalism. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus is the light. But he said that you are the light. I have a beautiful lamp here. One of our members gave me this. You see how clear and beautiful this globe is? And when you put the globe on there, you can let the light shine and it gives light. And everybody can see the light. If it were dark in here, you could see the light and there would be a glow around. But let me show you something. You can let something happen to that globe. And when you let your life burn with passion or pride or let it get out of control, pretty soon what happens? That beautiful globe, that beautiful life becomes all smoky. If you can't tell it here, you can after the service. That globe that was clear and showed a lot of light has become dark and smutty and doesn't give out the light that it could have given out. Oh, a little light, sure, but not anything like the brilliance that it could give. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. What kind of light are you going to give? What kind of influence are you going to have? What kind of salt are you going to be? Let's determine today to make people thirsty by the saltiness of our lives and to be the kind of light that will warm and guide and direct and bring people to Jesus. Beloved friend, if you're here today and you've never been saved, you've never given your heart to Jesus, Jesus beckons you to be part of that salt, to be part of that light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. May we pray. Our hearts bowed before the Lord in humility for just a moment. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us an assignment. You've called us to be salt and light. Help us to obey that injunction. And where there has come smut or where the light has been dimmed by our being too close to the world or adopting the world's standards or following its fashions or its customs, may we come back to thee today and say, Lord, cleanse me, forgive me, and believe thy word that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand, please? We're going to sing God's invitation. Listen carefully to this word.
Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. The invitation is simple. First of all, if you're already salt and light, but you've observed in your life that somehow you've lost some of the saltiness, you've lost some of the brilliance of the light, and God's Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart about renewal, you want that changed, would you come today? and say, by the grace of God, I want my light brightened. I want to get rid of all those old smuts. I want to be somebody that God can use in a dark world. If you've lost some of your saltiness, come. Come back. Let the Lord cleanse you and renew that salt. The second part of the invitation, if you've never been saved, you've never received Christ. The Bible says, this is not a plan of salvation I gave you this morning. You could try from now till doomsday, say, I'm not going to be impure. I'm not going to uh, commit oaths. I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to do this and that and the other. And all of that personal cleansing would be like the leaves that the wind carries away. Wouldn't do you any good because you need a radical change. You need Jesus to come in and perform surgery and give you a new heart. He'll do it. He said he would. When Jesus died on the cross, they pierced his hands with some nails. They pierced his side with a sword. Forthwith there came out water and blood. And it was the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Jesus died. Three days later, he was raised from the grave. He's a living Savior. And if you'll put your trust in him and believe that what he did at Calvary was enough to cleanse you, he'll save you. And then invite the living Savior into your heart to be your source of power, your strength day by day. Will you do that? While we begin to sing, who will step out first for the king? Will you come today?